Hey, Tamir. Hey, Allison. <laughs> Are you ready for part two in our conversation about harm? Yeah, yeah. It's been a while since we've uh, posted an episode, so thanks, folks, for uh, staying with us. We're excited to dig into this. Yeah, holidays hit us, illness, et cetera, et cetera. We're super glad to be back. Uh, we're super glad to follow up on part one of talking about harm, where we looked at harm and what it is in anti-racist context, why it matters. We also looked at some of the ways white people cause harm to people of color. And today, <clears throat> we're going to dig into more big questions about navigating harm as white people in this work. Uh, some of those questions are, what should we do when we cause harm? When is repair appropriate? What happens when it isn't? What happens when a person of color says that you've harmed them and you're not quite sure you agree? And this kind of big question of, can white people be harmed in a racial justice context? Uh, and if you're looking to stop causing harm, what should you be looking to do instead? If not harm, then what? So those are just a few of our, our big questions we're going to get into today. But before we do that, I'd love to check in, Tamir, and hear, you know, what's something you're bringing with you into our conversation today? I think I'm bringing a desire to challenge myself to be more specific at times. In listening to some of our old episodes, I found there were times when I let a thought stay fairly unformed or like there was something I was trying to get at, but it wasn't concrete. And mm -hmm. I'm realizing that those unformed thoughts can be places where racism lives ah. or racist ideas live. And so I am challenging myself when I feel like I'm hemming and hawing a bit to be like, what am I actually talking mm -hmm. about, scared of, and just name the thing. And if it's ugly, let it be ugly. Mm. Ah. Thank you for leaning into that. Yeah, I love I love the commitment <clears throat> to concreteness. I love that. And I think I'll, I'm on board with you on trying to support you in that and doing that myself, being more concrete and specific. Awesome. How about you? What am I bringing into our conversation today? Well, it's really related to our conversation, but... Um, it was talking yesterday with a colleague about power and the ways that people who have power often don't recognize that they have power and almost like, yeah. I don't know that I stand by this, but like, there's almost an inverse relationship. And sometimes of like the more power you have, the less aware of like all the different ways in which you have power. Yes. Uh, so I've just been thinking about power and like how kind of really this question of like how to make it evident or obvious um, to folks who have power or to ourselves when we have power, actually what we have the power to do and like, you know, questions around what do we want to do with that power? Do we want to, can we seed it? Can we hold it differently, et cetera? So that's, that's what's on my mind today. There's so much, so much to unpack there. Because <laughs> there are folks who have power and they're aware of the power that they have. And in some ways they are objects of their own power. Mm-hmm right? When they're ready to engage and do the work and folks are like hitting them with a really harsh power analysis, but it's like, I'm here, right? I'm here to do the thing. And there are folks who don't have formal power who have more power than they are aware of. Mm -hmm. So there's just so many layers that are coming up for me and what you're saying. Could be an episode, could be a future episode. We'll see. <laughs> Maybe it should. There's also a lot about giving up power that yeah. we struggle with a ton as white folks. Yep. 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 Yeah. I, yeah. I'd love to talk more with you about it. Cool. Hmm. I wanted 
to share one thing with our audience that we are doing a new thing. Uh, and it's called coffee breaks. It's pretty self-explanatory. Um, Tamir and I are going to get together and have coffee and we are going to have an informal unstructured conversation. And we want to invite you to join dear listener. Um, we'll share info with you on our socials and our email list about how you can join us, but we want you to be a part of just informal conversation about topics related to anti-racism, um, not, not as structured as this podcast, just kind of off the cuff. And our first one's going to be on March 8th, so feel free to check our socials, um, check your email box if you're on our email list to, to learn how to join us. Yeah, this March 8th from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern, am I remembering that right? It is 3 to 4 Eastern. 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern. <laughs> yeah, 12 to 1 Pacific, 3 to 4 Eastern, um, and probably not the whole hour, so for planning purposes. Yeah. Uh, I just yeah. want to say I'm really excited about this for a couple of reasons. One is I love doing this pod, and one of the limitations is that we don't get to interact with people in real time, and the coffee break is more of a hangout, right? So we're just, like Allison said, 15, 30 minutes random topic and we're not going to spend you know three or four weeks developing our talking points and so there's there's so much power in the the comment you make off the cuff and what it reveals about what we're thinking and feeling that we don't get to when we're all together and it's a chance to get to know you all better and for you all to get to know each other so really hope you'll join us it should be a lot of fun and hopefully really helpful as well Awesome. Yep. I'm excited too, for all those reasons, but let's get back to the topic at hand, back to harm. Um, Tamir, do you want to kick us off with just reminding our audience when we say harm, what do we mean? Yeah. So when we say harm, we mean behaviors that reproduce dynamics of oppression and have material, psychological, or emotional consequences particularly for people of color and for people carrying multiple oppressions. How does our work kind of build on other folks' work on harm? Like, we didn't come up with this ourselves. Like, yeah. We didn't, yeah. It's, I'm glad you asked that. It's really important to acknowledge that the work that we're doing here today, it builds on the work of abolition feminists. And abolition feminists are mostly women of color and non-binary folks many of them Black women and non-binary people who are working to do away with policing, prisons, and other what you might call institutions of social control. And these are folks like Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Mariam Kaba, Patrice Cullors, and many, many, many more. And their work really gives us this language, including the concepts of harm and repair. And those emerge as alternatives to language around crime and punishment, innocence and guilt, which are used to uphold policing, prisons and other institutions that keep people of color in oppressed conditions in this country. Um, and what, yeah, I guess I'll stop there. Thanks for kind of sharing that grounding and what we're yeah basing this work on. This is not our own. We are uh, not inventing anything new under the sun in many ways, but building on just the wisdom of, of folks who have gone before and are still doing this work. Yeah, I think maybe what we are doing is sort of taking that work and extending it to how do we engage with this as white folks who are trying to do it, right? Because yeah. the the concept seems straightforward if potentially really radical, but the application is often sticky, and we make yeah. it stickier for ourselves. And we're getting into that stickiness together. Exactly. <laughs> what do we do in that stickiness? Yeah. So 
I wanted that our first question to you of what, and really kind of broadly, where is repair a thing and what happens when it isn't? And how do you know? Like, let's get right into repair. What do we even mean by it? Yeah, those are those are great questions. And so many of us are carrying a lot of guilt and shame for times when we've caused harm. We don't know what to do with it. And like you said, the first thing is, what do we even mean when we say repair? So Mia Mingus, um, who has a lovely blog called Leaving Evidence, which I highly encourage you to check out, uh, writes that repair includes making amends to and, build, and rebuilding trust. Sorry, let me do that again. Mia Mingus writes, repair includes making amends and rebuilding trust so that you can assure others you will not commit the hurt or harm again. It's an opportunity to do the work, to be in right relationship with those you have hurt or harmed, and just as important, to also be in right relationship with yourself. Let's get into how should we respond when we harm someone? And Mia Mingus, again, lays out this, lays kind of what I'm about to share out really beautifully in a piece she wrote around giving good apologies, the kind of four parts of an apology. And she says, which I, I agree with all these parts, um, that the first step is to make sure we understand what someone has experienced. So if they haven't told us that they've been harmed, but we think perhaps that maybe we have caused harm, that they have been harmed, this could be something as simple as saying to them, hey, you know, I noticed your energy just changed. Like what, ha what just happened for you? Like checking in, really. And it could be that we didn't cause harm at all. So, you know, presuming that we've caused harm isn't always appropriate. But if we have been told that we've caused harm, then we can either acknowledge the harm that we've caused and if appropriate, kind of reflect back that we understand, you know, what we understand their experience to be. Um, that reflection can look like saying, you know, I'm hearing you say that I've created an extractive situation by asking you to do X, Y, Z task without considering the emotional labor that would be involved. Is that right? Like checking for understanding. And this is super important because there may be more to what someone has said that needs to be unpacked or clarified before we can address it. So if we jump right to the apology, we might actually be missing like a key piece <laughs> of what needs to be addressed. And the next step that Mia Mingus lays out is to actually apologize. And this is true. I think this is a good step, whether we believe we've caused harm or not. And so there's obviously nuance here. We're going to unpack that more later in the episode. Uh, but before then, we want to really <laughs> distinguish between apologies and non-apologies, because that's super important. Uh, I would say that an apology includes the phrase, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and it's really wild how often people, quote unquote, apologize without actually saying the words, I'm sorry. If you start to listen to apologize, you'll notice that, unfortunately, apologies, you'll notice that this happens more, more often than not, unfrequently. Um, an apology centers the impact over the intent and it centers the other person over yourself. It isn't about defending, you know, what you were trying to do or trying to say or whatever. Like that's not the part of the apology. The apology is for the other person and about the other person. And in the vein of like intent and impact, an apology focuses on the thing you did versus blaming the other person for having feelings about the thing that you did. So a non-apology can sound like saying, I'm sorry you feel hurt, <laughs> as opposed to, I'm sorry for doing X, and I can see now that that was really hurtful to you. Um, Tamir, did you have any other thoughts about like apologies versus non-apologies? You know, it's like the distinction between, I'm sorry you feel that way, and I'm sorry I made you feel that way. It's just really yes. important. It's really important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like when you say that you're saying, you know, I 
murdered your cousin, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm sorry I did a thing and it had that impact. It doesn't mean that you're taking on all the responsibility for another person's suffering. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think we kind of we we broadly struggle with this because I think there's such confusion around doing a bad thing and being a bad person and like an mm-hmm. admission of guilt of like I did a bad thing. I think a lot of times gets interpreted as like, I am a bad person. Like I am not worthy. Um, so I think that just makes it hard <laughs> to, to own the thing that you did. And it's also, it's a culture shift, right? Because so, how often when somebody's asked to apologize, have you heard them say, Oh, I'm not responsible for their feelings. Mm-hmm. And like, if your goal is to practice a sense of energetic scarcity, where mm-hmm. any demand on your inner resources, like compassion or thoughtfulness right, is an imposition, Mm. which is like a capitalist approach to one's inner resources, then yeah, you know, you might feel like you're not responsible for other people's feelings. But if we really care about how all of us are doing, it's actually much easier when you're in the habit to extend yourself a little bit, maybe Mm. farther than you might think you might have to go. Just be like, I see you. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry I did that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now what, right? Like, how, how do we make it better? How do I help? And you're about to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that leads us perfectly to kind of the next step that Mia Mingus lays out of making amends. So once we are clear on what has happened that has caused harm, once we've apologized, we can move into making amends. And that's really answering the question of, you know, what kind of redress are, are appropriate? Like, it can look a number of different ways, depending on the situation. It might involve compensation, like paying someone retroactively for uncompensated work. It might involve a public or full group apology if it happened in a collective or group context. And if the harm is severe or pervasive enough, making amends could include leaving a group or leaving a shared space. Did you have an example you wanted to share here, Tamir? Uh, Yeah. So um, there's an example in the world of like fat lib or fat body liberation. Um, where um, somebody wrote a book, uh, a trans white person uh, wrote a book, I want to say it was called Radical Belonging. And the book was at the time, a sort of important installment, at least to some in that world, and went on to try to collaborate with fat activists of color and kind of tried to repeatedly try to impose their like kind of rank so that they could get repeated exposure. And all this was documented. The receipts were posted, I believe on Twitter or Reddit, they were somewhere. And um, folks of color who had organized around this agenda had said like, you can't be a member of this organization anymore. We've tried a bunch of times to bring to your attention the impact of your behavior. And Mm -hmm. if you want to um, repair this relationship that you need to invest in a facilitator. you might hear that example and think, oh, that's cancel culture, unless you're noticing, right, harmful behavior, a harmful pattern of behavior, and repeated unsuccessful attempts to address, right? So yeah. in that case, and this is not like, oh, they deserve what they got. That's kind of, uh, I'm not here to adjudicate that. But that's a space where if trust is eroded enough and there's enough harm, maybe it makes sense to be like, you know what? I'm going to leave this alone right now. I'm going to make amends in some other way. I'm going to work through my behavior to demonstrate that I understand the lesson that I'm being offered here. And then maybe that door can reopen 
in the future. And there's, there's a lot for us to learn about principled and compassionate separation, whether we're choosing to step away or we're clearly at a point in a, a personal or organizational relationship where things just are not working. Yep. 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 Oh, thanks for sharing that example. And thanks for making the delineation between like someone was canceled and like all of the different steps that led to that principled separation. Hmm. And that actually leads to the fourth uh, and final kind of step of um, making kind of good apologies, according to Mayor Mingus, which is the behavior change piece that you just referenced. So that can include doing self-work or self-learning so that you're not going to cause the same harm again. Uh, this can happen by yourself with trusted friends or colleagues, can happen in a coaching relationship or in a therapeutic relationship. Um it also can look like changing policies or norms in a group or organization. Um, and that's behavior change because that ch it changes the behaviors of a system, if that makes sense. And just a quick note that like these pieces aren't necessarily linear. I mean, I, I think it, you know, it would be good to make sure you understand what someone has experienced before doing these other things, but that understanding may expand as you apologize, as you, you know, seek to change your behavior, for example. So these four pieces aren't linear, but they definitely kind of work together, if that makes sense. Absolutely. All right, Tamir. How do we know when repair would be welcome and appropriate? What kinds of things are you considering or thinking about when you're considering repair? Yeah, so I feel like there are some general guidelines to this. And it's often not like, is repair a thing or is repair not a thing? But what mode of repair or possibilities feel appropriate given the circumstances? So the first piece that I think about is, where is the other person in terms of consent? Right. So I can't force somebody who I've harmed into a conversation about how I've harmed them because I want to feel better. That is furthering the harm. Um, what's the risk or potential burden to the person you're seeking repair with? Right. Do I have formal power over them? Can I fire them? Do I own their favorite restaurant? Um, am I their landlord? Right. Like all these things factor in. Am I influential in my field and my opinion carries weight? Right. Mm. Um, has the person, to the example I gave earlier, has the person I've uh, um, I've harmed already tried to seek repair with me, and I've deflected or shut them down or given them a non-apology? That's another deposit of harm that I've put right in that soil. Mm -hmm. And I'll um, we didn't talk about this earlier, but one of the important features of our definition of harm is that it has two layers. The first is it reflects dynamics of oppression and has consequences for people of color. The second is that pursuing recourse, if you are a person of color who has been harmed, is hazardous, it's risky, it's burdensome, it takes a lot of emotional labor. Um, mm. And it does, again, because of those same imbalances in power. So this is an example of a time when um, knowing that a person, being able to say, hey, you tried to talk to me about this last week, and I totally blew you off and that was fucked up. I'm sorry. Mm. Or maybe I need to do that a different way. Maybe I need to say, you know, hey, Bob, I know you were talking with so-and-so on Friday. We had a really bad interaction, the two of us, and I need some help figuring out how to approach this because I really mishandled it, right? Mm. Um, and then how much repair is required, right? Uh, my, my friends Alfonso Winker and Trina Olson talk a lot about cleanup. 
where so, sometimes they just make space for like, hey, did anything weird happen between us that we should clear the air about? Yeah. And it might be like, oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Or, yeah. hey, like, did that land weird? Right. Just simple, done in the moment. No problem. Yeah. Or is something deeper needed? Because that really changes the level of, of time and preparation involved. Mm. Are you ready to take responsibility for the harm you've caused and mm. really here with it? You got to check in with yourself on that one. And do you have the support you need? And again, you might not need much. If it's a simple cleanup job, that's cool. Um, mm. You might need a skilled facilitator. You might need a trusted community member. You might need a relative. It all depends on the situation. Mm. Um, and how invested are the two of you in building together or being in relationship? Like, did you say something shitty to someone at a protest? Like, you don't want to track them down and apologize. Well, well I fucked that up. And if I ever see them again, we're in the same space. Mm. Maybe I'll see if they'll let me apologize. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you're invested in building together, or at least you're in a space of people who are building together, some form of repair is important. And as we're going to talk about later, repair is not always a one-to-one -one conversation where you apologize and all is forgiven. Sometimes it's ceasing the harmful behavior and making space for a group to be, to continue to function, mm. um, without you causing further harm. So the other person has space to just do their thing and maybe maybe see that you're, you know, making good on, on the feedback they gave you. Yeah. Oh, you just offered so many great questions and consideration for self-reflection for folks who are thinking about pursuing repair, trying to figure out how to do that. I feel like we need to write these down and share these somewhere like on our socials or something. These are, these are juicy. We should, we totally should. Mm. I, I did some thinking about the same question too. And a lot of what I came up with really mirrors what you came up with. Like first, you know, consent, right? Like we can ask, we can name that we've done damage. There's a rift and we can say that we'd like to repair it to the degree that that's possible, knowing that repair doesn't undo the damage and the other party, you know, sh should be able to consent to that or not. Like we can't force <laughs> repair on anyone who doesn't want to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I thought about was timing, you know, that ideally, you know, you'd want to attempt repair as soon as both parties are ready so that the harm doesn't fester over time, morph into something bigger. Because mm -hmm. uh, if a lot of time has passed, like bringing up a past issue may not feel relevant to the other person, may trigger memories that the other person's already put to rest, like timing matters, right? But again, yeah. it's got to be consensual, like both parties have to consent to that timing. Um, and then you asked a lot of questions about like relationship and proximity. And those were things I was thinking about too. Like, do you have to interact with this person regularly because of your relationship? Um, you work together, you're part of the same circle of friends, et cetera. Mm -hmm. If so, the stakes are higher around repair because your relationship involves other people and impacts them as well. So like thinking about, yeah, how, what has happened in your relationship may actually ripple out to the other people you're also in relationship with. Mm -hmm. And then there's this question too of like, and this is like a real hard, like I feel like this is, you know, you got to honor, ask this and answer this internally, honestly, like mm -hmm. how much do you value the relationship? Like if this is someone you care about, who you're invested in and, and if they feel the same way too, it's got to go both ways. Like making an attempt to repair and service of that relationship will hopefully be welcomed if, if the other person also values the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I don't know. I mean, it's like, yeah, I can just, I can think about <laughs> relationships in my life where, you know, I've had to come to the hard conclusion that like, actually, I don't 
value this relationship maybe as much as I once did. Maybe I feel like I've we've outgrown it, we've grown apart or whatever. So repair isn't going to look the same way. Repair may not even be a possibility because of kind of the the mutual investment in the relationship not being there. Does that make sense? For sure. And I think if we're being honest, sometimes as white people, we want a relationship with a person of color. Like what's our motivation for being in the relationship? Is it to prove that we're not racist? Because people of color can see through that pretty easily. Yeah. <laughs> and like, why should anybody have to do emotional labor to be in relationship with somebody who's not there for the right reasons? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So being really honest with ourselves about, yeah, why why we're in the relationship. What is the value that we put on it? Yeah. Why are we there? Mm-hmm. Oh. And then another thing I was thinking about, kind of the final thing I'll share is you talked about it as well, too, like the difference between just a simple cleanup job and something more extensive, like the size of harm causes a consideration in the repair. And it's tricky because it's based on your perception. Um, Mm -hmm. But let's, you know, going with our own perception as a starting point, if the harm was a simple misstep, like you said, like a cleanup job. Like maybe you said something in a way that, you know, upon reflection, you would have said differently if given mm-hmm. another chance. The repair could be as simple as saying, you know, hey, I was thinking about how I said X and I realized my tone was pretty short and snippy. You know, I want to apologize for speaking to you in that way. And I want to let you know I'm going to be much more intentional about my tone, you know, when we talk. So, yeah, and that's I, I think it's tricky because I think sometimes we think it's a small harm, but it's really bigger for other folks, or it really mm-hmm. contributes to, especially if we're talking about harm to people of color done by us as white people, it contributes to the like thousand paper cuts kind of analogy, mm-hmm. right? Like, like maybe small, but it contributes to just a ton of other harms that have accumulated over time or the same kind of harm again and again. So I don't know. I get, I get a little, I don't know. That's tricky. That that feels sticky. It's like, how I, big is, it, is the question? I guess I'm asking. I think there's more to unpack around how we understand the size of harm that may have been caused. Cause there's, there's a version of this where somebody is living in fear of causing harm and they're mm-hmm. belaboring apologies for lots of little things, which then becomes annoying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and one could say performative. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times when I'm concerned a lot of times I'm concerned, like, am I doing this thing? I know it's a pattern, but does it apply to this person, right? Mm. So like, if I'm in a business relationship with a woman of color and we're we're pitching a client and I'm talking more, mm. am I, am I um, making them look like the junior person or are we actually leaning on my experience and closing deals, mm. right? Mm. So I can say afterwards, and like you and I even have our own version of this, right? When we talk about airtime, Right. Yeah. Like, hey, I feel like maybe I talked more than you that episode. Like, do we need to adjust? And you might say it was cool that time. Maybe not the way we want it to be going forward. Same thing with this partner. Right. Like, how did that feel for you? So it's not always like I don't want to assume that I've caused harm. But the mm-hmm. flip side of that can be that we're not always willing to acknowledge when we have caused more serious harm. Right. So like, yes. was my decision to terminate somebody's employment influenced by implicit bias? And then mm-hmm. what the hell do I do about that? Because they're gone and they probably never want to talk to me again. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's probably some sort of discernment process around like, what was the behavior? What evidence did you see of impact? What could the consequences be? And then like, what kind of remedial action, if any, might be appropriate? 
something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. There's so much around like, yeah. Size of harm, perception of that harm. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for getting into that. Oh. So what happens when repair isn't a thing? Maybe repair isn't welcomed. Time has passed. Like you gave the example, like, you know, someone's long gone. You're not going to, yeah, be able to repair with them. We know that repair is good to aspire to, but it's not always appropriate or necessary. And so if you're in a group, it may be that you all find a non-dysfunctional workaround in that group. So let's say I've caused harm as a white person to a person of color. Maybe someone else in my white allies group becomes a liaison to that particular person of color who I offended. Like sometimes there can be a workaround, right, in that way. And even if repair isn't immediately possible, if again, at a group setting, it may be that the group can make some agreements for how people in the group can be with each other so that further harm is prevented or at least becomes less likely. So this goes back to like changing group agreements or behavior in a group to prevent for future harm. So it may not address the specific harm that's happened, but it may interrupt a pattern and prevent future harm from happening. Can I jump in on that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is one of the places where things can get really grindy, right? So let's say you're in a group and you're in an organization that's committed to racial equity, or is at least publicly professed that commitment. It's a mixed race group of people, people of color on your team have experienced harm. And folks are not ready to come back and really talk about the harm. Repair feels far away. And I've started asking a question from times when I felt too timid in addressing that. Like, what kind of relationship do we need to be in in order to do this work? Because mm. we yeah. don't want to be in a place where survival mechanisms are the things that are driving the way we engage with one another. Right? Yeah. I don't think anybody wants, I don't think anybody wants to be in that place. Sometimes people feel like they have to be in that place. That's completely legitimate, right? People of color survival strategies are 100% legitimate and evidence-based. Mm. And do you have to be able to give each other honest feedback on policy proposals? Do you have to be able to disagree respectfully? And if so, what does that look like? So you don't have to be super vulnerable in terms of sharing your deepest personal challenges. Yeah. But if we're trying to change things for folks out in the world, we do have to be able to do certain things. And so what does it take to get there? And can we be honest about when that no longer feels possible? And what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sorry, just one thing that comes to me is like, if you are a white person who has done that, I have offered to leave groups before. Um, and sometimes like um, to say like, you know, I recognize that I'm contributing to this. I'm doing my best. I'm not sure if we're a place where it's possible. Should I go? Mm. Mm. Right. And if not, mm. and the thing I wish I had said in those times is, and if not, what are we going to do? Because yeah. this ain't working. How are we going to be in exactly your question? How do we need to be in relationship to do this work? And like, yeah. yeah, not everyone has to be best friends. We don't have to be bearing our souls to do a specific task, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it gets grindy because we don't just want to be civil with one another, right? right. We don't just want to like be tolerant of one another, but there's a long distance between, there's, there's a lot of a nuance between just being tolerant and being best friends with mm -hmm. someone. So like, yeah, like what, what do folks need to be in whatever kind of relationship um, is needed for whatever task is at hand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I know one thing that we talked about is like, you know, if repair isn't a thing, we may have to prepare ourselves to live with some guilt or some tension for a while. Like you may have to hold some of those uncomfortable feelings and like, you know, if you start showing up differently in a relationship, in a group setting, you may never fully mend the harm. The harm has been done, but you may soften any lingering hurt feelings or resentment that that harm has produced. So like, yeah, even if repair is not a possibility, showing up differently can, can shift things sometimes, not always, Mm -hmm. but it, it can sometimes. Yeah. And it's not just the relationship, right? Like it actually can allow the work to move forward. Mm-hmm. If you were the obstacle, right. Cause you wanted <laughs> yeah. to give, you know, cops the benefit of the doubt and you're working with a group that's focused on police violence. Like you fucked with the work. Mm-hmm. So yeah. now you got to unfuck with the work. Right. So yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. So do your own work on kind of abolition. <laughs> yeah. like Show up differently. Yeah. Um, one reminder to me and I wanted to share is that, um, we can't expect folks of color to forgive us or seek repair on our timeline. And that's right. If we we are holding that expectation that actually reproduces white supremacy, like no one else is responsible for healing on our timeline. We don't as white folks get to dictate (laughs) how healing or repair can happen. Right. Like we're offering, you know, best practices. We're offering our best thinking on this and it's hundred percent got to be consensual for the relationships that you're in. Mm-hmm. you know, with folks of color who you've harmed. And sometimes people need to heal without us, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes yeah. healing requires that we not be present. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Mm. In it? Do I want to go there? Okay. So that means yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you so, going to be concrete? You're going to be concrete and specific? Yes. Okay. Yes. So one thing that I have experienced that feels really sticky for me is that I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but I have had conversations with folks where something happens and it's somewhere between harm and there's just hurt feelings in a group. Right. And folks who have said that they feel harmed have not been willing to actually participate in conversations about what the harm even is Mm. and what is needed. And the response is, I don't feel safe. This is actually like, I've talked to multiple like organizational leaders of color who are highly regarded, right? In my field who have been like, there's actually a generational issue where younger folks in my organizations are saying, this is harmful, abusing power, but there's no actual dialogue that leads to a resolution and that some of these terms can feel weaponized. And it's really hard, I think, as a white person, how do you navigate that? Right. Mm-hmm. How do you say, like, it's not like I'm going to go to a person of color and be like, did I really harm you? Or are you feeling harmed? Like, yeah, <laughs> I think we all, I, I hope that we all have the judgment not to do that. Yeah. Um, there's but a level what, of, go ahead. What do we think there's an unwillingness to, to share what that harm is or like, yeah. yeah. Or if somebody says, well, I don't feel safe. And that's sure. like, that's a shutter on the conversation, right? How can I, how can I continue the conversation if you don't feel safe? Right. Which is both like a rhetorical question and a literal one. So what's the strategy? Um, And there's, there's a lot to unpack there because what that should not do is be like, well, they're not willing to come to the table. So we're just going to move on. No, Mm -hmm. no. If we're committed to moving together, we've got to find a way forward. And this is where I think collectively, anybody who's working towards justice, we, most of us have a lot of skilling up to do. 
in how we hold those moments. Because I think those are the moments that determine whether an organization really has the kind of impact it wants Mm. or whether it struggles and its ability to, to, to create change is muted by that internal stagnation. I don't know exactly what to call it friction. And then there's pain in that too. Sure. And the pain matters. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think there's absolutely for someone to say, you know, I don't feel safe. I don't feel Mm -hmm. safe enough to talk about this. There's pain behind that. Like, I don't want us to like disregard that. And as you said, it it does shutter the conversation. Like, so it's, for me, I feel like it begs the question of like, how can we move forward and acknowledge your pain and honor your pain and not, you Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) not increase it, not create more pain. But also, yeah, like, how can we move forward to take action in a different yeah. way? And if I don't know what I've done to harm, to cause harm, if I don't understand mm-hmm. that, it's going to be really hard for me yeah. <laughs> to move forward. Like, is there someone else who, who can explain it? Is there like, mm-hmm. check back in in a week? Like, is it, you know, I don't know. What yeah. Do you, yeah. I think if you're at a point with the group that there's a generalized feeling of non-safety, you need a skilled facilitator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you've probably reached a point that whatever the cause of that non-safety is, um, that you need someone who is skilled in holding space for that to come forth. Yeah. And if you're at a point again, where like, you know, that's, that's not feeling possible. And I was like, well, you know, I hear that this is how you're feeling. So where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Right. Without attachment to an answer. Yep. Yeah. And the answer might be, well, I don't know right now. Okay. So you want to check back in in a week? Mm-hmm. Um, is there some way I can support you indirectly? Like, what what do you need? Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love just how, like, kind of what you said and how you said it, because I feel like it does really honor the pain that's there in the other yeah. person. And it, it it doesn't just say, it doesn't just throw our hands up and kind of make us the victim, you know, and yeah. be like, oh, we can't do anything. No, it's like, you know, like, like it, it still is kind of gently pushing for like, we've got to move forward in a different way. How do we want to do that? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And it shows a level of care. Mm-hmm. And I mean, care to me is such a, an antidote in all of this when we can do it in a way that's not performative. And I know we're going to come back to this later, so I won't belabor it now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to sit more with the question of what, what does it mean when somebody says, I don't feel safe, mm-hmm. right? Is it like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job if I say anything else. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid I'm about to lose my temper because I'm really activated right now. Is it like, I don't trust you to hold what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Is it, I'm afraid I'm going to be shut down? Or is it yeah. like something is coming up for me internally that I don't even know what it is mm-hmm. and I need to sit with it. And yeah. that's the, all that stuff is hard to parse in the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially if there's activation there. Yeah. You know, one's activated. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it's better. I said earlier that I don't, I don't feel safe can feel like a shutter. And I think sometimes it can be used that way, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that ha- that has to be how we treat it. Right. Sure. What if we just yeah. give each other some grace? What if it's just like, again, okay, what do you need? Mm-hmm. What's happening for you right now? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's yeah. Going back to like things being weaponized. It, yeah. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to be a shutter, but it definitely can be. <laughs> and yeah, even if it is, how do we move forward with yeah. grace? How do we move forward with what can I, what can I offer this person in this moment? Yeah. 
I also think in some ways, like we can revisit this idea of weaponization as well, because mm-hmm. like white people weaponizing their tears to prevent conversation about racial justice is different from a person of color saying, I don't feel safe because they're experiencing emotional distress and they're not in a place where they can participate in a conversation, which is totally. one possible thing that that can mean. Right. Totally. And so like, maybe it's not a weapon, but it's like timeout. Mm-hmm. I need something. Mm-hmm. This is not yeah. working. Yeah. Right. And like, if we can hold that without treating it as like an attack on us, there's mm-hmm. so much more room for us to exercise care. Yeah. And be in right relationship because that's a huge part of that. Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. That is, yeah. I want to sit with that too. Hmm. So another question we shared at the top of the episode was, can white people be harmed in a racial justice context? So I want to take us back to our working definition of harm. Harm is behaviors that reproduce dynamics of oppression and have material, psychological, or emotional consequences. So keeping that in mind, I'm going to list out some situations And Tamir and I are each going to give our opinion on whether a white person has experienced harm in that situation or not. These are not our definitive answers. These are our best thinking in this moment uh, in some sticky situations. So our first situation is a white person is told that they will not be given a particular job or contract because the organization has decided to prioritize candidates of color. What do you think, Tamir? Harm or not harm? Was the white person harmed or not harmed in this situation? Not harm. That's not harm. And let's let's unpack it, right? So one piece of this, this this gets into all these debates about affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And like it is entirely appropriate. Like I, I've had this happen to me very recently, where a group that I was, you know, pretty interested in working with said, mm-hmm. you know, we've decided to prioritize candidates of color. And I was like, great. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you have. So many candidates, you know, um, and I'm not really harmed by this in any way. There's so much work out there, right? No one job or one contract is going to make or break my future. Now Mm -hmm. I have a a friend who's white and his, uh, he worked for a foundation. The foundation, uh, closed the donors decided to sunset it and do something else. And he started looking for other jobs in philanthropy and an interviewer in a job interview told him that his time in philanthropy was up. Hmm, wow. I thought that was harmful. Bold like, move. <laughs> it did not need to be said. This is a person who has worked very hard on how they show up as a white person. I just thought it was unnecessary and frankly, kind of shitty. Mm, mm. Does it. So you, I mean, this is a separate other example and I totally yeah. agree with like our initial example. Yeah. yeah I, yes. I, I too have experienced that being passed over in that way, but intentionally, not just like being passed over. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that's harm. In the example you just gave of the interviewer saying the shitty thing to the white person in the interview, does that, I agree that it was shitty. I agree it was not a great mm-hmm. thing to say, but does it reproduce dynamics of oppression yeah, so this this gets into like harm in a racial justice context versus harm in the broader world. And this is a place where the definition breaks down a little bit. This is like the argument about whether black people can be racist, mm. which I find that argument to be personally completely unhelpful. Mm-hmm. If there are people listening who feel strongly about this, please feel free to at me. Like, let's talk about <laughs> it. Um, but like, 
it is harmful to me in my life if when I go to try to do social justice work, people are like, fuck you. Mm. It's incredibly discouraging and it makes me feel bad, right? Mm. That's harmful. Is it that like uh, it's reproducing dynamics of oppression? No. Mm. It has emotional consequences. Sure. Um, and I don't really have recourse except to find people who won't talk to me that way. So mm-hmm. there's yeah. a false, I'm not going to say that it's the same as a uh, 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 South Asian person being passed over for a job because the assumption is that they have no soft skills, mm-hmm. right? That would be a false equivalence, but that doesn't mean it's not harmful to me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. I, I, yeah, I agree with you on all of it. Let's look at our second situation. Situation number two. A white person makes a mistake in a worker community setting that causes harm to peers of color. That white person gets called out by those peers of color in ways that feel unfair or hurtful. Harm or not harm, Tamir, what do you think? So, again, based on our definition, I would say it's not harm, but Mm. in human experience, like that hurts, Mm. right? Like that's that's Mm. a painful thing in addition to like, you know, being told about yourself in a way that's most likely right. Yeah. You know, like it, it, it hurts. It hurts to, ha- to to feel like your character is being impugned. People mm-hmm. might be making assumptions about your motives that feel completely mm-hmm. unfair. Um, maybe it feels a little mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also important to hold that there are very relatively few spaces where people of color can safely speak up about Hmm. the harm that they've experienced. And I think anytime there's space for that to come out, there's the potential for it to come out in ways that can feel harsh. Mm. And the fact that it feels unfair or hurtful doesn't mean that it is. Oh, that, that part, Tamir, that part. (laughs) And the hurt is different from harm based on our definition, right? Like they can feel similarly. They get the 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 impact the felt impact can be very similar but if we're saying that harm reproduces dynamics of oppression that's not the same as hurt hurt does not do that mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah Ugh. but the felt the felt experience sucks for sure <laughs> not trying yeah. to take away from that yeah situation number three this is a little bit longer so listen up listeners <laughs> a white man working for a major university has been working to support students and colleagues of color in organizing for change on campus. When he expresses concerns about an organizing strategy that, in his experience, has not gotten results in the past, he is accused of trying to control the students and silence their dissent. He keeps his job, but his relationships with students are strained and he feels shunned in group meetings. Tamir, what do you think? Harm, not harm. I was going to ask, do you want to go first this time? Sure, I'll go first. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think this is harm. <laughs> I mean, this is a person who is white, who is man, who has positional power within a university um, and has been called in, has been, you know, called out, called in. We don't really know that, you know, what being accused looks like, but he's been taken a task on on his perspective. Um, and I think disagreement about an organizing strategy is not harm. And he still keeps all of his privilege and positional power in this. Um, and the, there's some work to be done in the relationship, right? Like that doesn't, yeah, just because there are hurt feelings and disagreement and 
a relationship that needs some work on it doesn't mean that there's harm in my mind. What do you think? Yeah, I think like the part that feels important to unpack to me is that this is a person who's expressed concern, but they're accused of trying to control people and mm -hmm. silence their dissent. Mm -hmm. And obviously this is a broad scenario. We don't know exactly what was said or how it was said. I have certainly been guilty in the past of offering concerns, quote mm -hmm. unquote, from a place of trying to be helpful that were much more about my discomfort. Mm, we don't yeah. know what the students have actually consented to this person doing. Are they in the kind of relationship where they can have these kinds of conversations? Have they built a container that allows for open strategy discussion? Do they want his help at all? Mm, um, yeah. And, you know, there's this, there's this whole like New York times narrative of wokeness run amok. And the assumption is that students don't actually know what they're talking about. And mm. they, you know, they're applying these broads, these concepts like a hatchet, right? And they're just throwing them around. And I'm not in higher ed. So mm. I don't know how I actually feel about that. But I think it's a little insulting to assume that people just blindly throw words around, right? Yes. So it's yes, especially folks who way less positional power in a situation, <laughs> like less power in yeah. general. Yeah, but I, have, I have been in a place where I felt shunned by people who have been who I have harmed. And mm. it sucks. But to your mm -hmm. point, a situation being really shitty and terrible does not mean you have been harmed directly by dynamics of oppression where you are in the position of power and privilege. Yep. So your yep. suffering is valid. It's just not harm in this context. Yeah. I feel like for all three of these situations, like what we're saying, <laughs> the conclusion we've come to is like, yeah, we can be hurt. We can even be quote unquote harmed, like harmed in the broader sense, not in a specific racial justice context, but we're not harmed by patterns of racial oppression that folks of color face. Like there's just, right. it's not, not possible for us to be on the, the receiving harm end of that. You mentioned earlier um, about, I feel like you mentioned earlier <laughs> about how uh, white people can weaponize their distress to shield yes. themselves from accountability. Um, and specifically white women um, have a power that people of color don't usually have, which is to, to weaponize their tears. Um, Ruby Hamad documents this in White Tears, Brown Scars. As Sarah Shulman notes, you know, we as white people have a tendency to complete, conflate conflict, disagreement, or attempts to hold us accountable with attacks and abuse. So, like, I think this just is reflected in all three of these situations. Like, we may feel bad. We may, mm -hmm. you know, there may be conflict. There may be disagreement. There may be an attempt to hold us account accountable, but that isn't an attack or abuse. That isn't yeah. harm in a racial oppression context. Yeah. But to introduce a little bit of nuance there. So, Adrienne Marie Brown has this really great set of distinctions between, I think it's like harm conflict, abuse, disagreement, critique, I think might be the five. This is in We Will Not Cancel Us, which I, I think I've recommended before and will always recommend. Yeah. Um, and I do think it is possible for groups to experience harm when they're not fully fluent in those distinctions mm -hmm. and their responses conflate those different experiences. So assuming that somebody doesn't agree with my opinion doesn't mean, like if somebody does, if I don't agree with somebody, it doesn't mean necessarily that I'm anti-Black. Even mm -hmm. if, for example, it might mean I have an anti-Black idea, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm not 
clear about, or it might mean I'm with you, but I'm not sure I agree on the conclusion that you've drawn. Mm -hmm. And confusing those can be harmful because it damages relationships and such. But that doesn't take away from your point that we, yet you and I as white people have the power to, um, to, to, to pull the levers to shut down conversations that make us uncomfortable or scared. Yeah. Yeah. And another piece of nuance that we talked about touching on is that we do experience harm from white supremacy. White people right. also experience harm from white supremacy. It just looks different <laughs> from what folks of color experience. Tamir, did you want to, would you want to speak to that for a moment? I, I can. Yeah. This is, this gets to the, this question that we've articulated in different ways, right. Of like, what's our stake in all of this? right? Mm. Beyond just trying to be decent human beings. So like having it be really hard to be an authentic relationship with people of color mm. is a harm caused by white supremacy, mm. struggling with stress, fear, and shame because we have power and privilege that we didn't ask for is a harmful byproduct of white supremacy. It's bad for our spiritual and mental and probably physical health. Yeah. Um, when groups can't navigate tension and conflict because of unequal relational dynamics, created by white supremacy that prioritize my comfort and well-being, or at least nominal well-being, right, over that of the people of color I'm in relationship with, that's mega stressful. Some mm. of those situations have been among the most traumatic in my life. Um, mm. I've had to take medical leave because of that stuff. Like, that's harm, right? Mm. Um, but that's different from things like being expected to do uncompensated emotional or uh, administrative labor, from being tokenized and only valued for the way I look and not for who I actually am. Mm. I'm having somebody clutch their purse when I walk by or yeah. like, you know, murder, genocide, right? That would be a false equivalence. So it's important to recognize we do experience harm from white supremacy, but it's not that harm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that false equivalence piece is so key on so many levels, but it's because I see have seen white people weaponize kind of harm against folks of color by using a false equivalence by, by saying it's the same. Um, and I mean, I don't see it on the like genocide, like structural level, but on the interpersonal level, for sure, I've seen it. And I think I don't want our listeners to walk away thinking that those mm -hmm. are the same. Those are the same thing. I think I do see it on the structural level, but I'm going to go way far to the right, right? This whole narrative that like, universal basic income or the social safety net or like for people who don't want to work and want to freeload on the state. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the fear is like, well, what happens to me if I have to pay more taxes when quote unquote, those people don't want to work, which you and I know is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, I think there's a similar pattern where in like, well, what's happening to me? This is scary. This is hard. It's almost like you have a tray of tools and you reach for the spatula and you're like, what about me? Right. And you're shaking the like, the harm, the harm spatula. I don't know. My analogy is breaking down. Right. But I think when we're scared, we'll reach for whatever is, is around us to try to use it to stabilize. And yeah. if we can actually chill out for a second and take a breath and be like, what's actually happening to me, right? What is wow. being asked of me? And where is there room for me to actually grow in this and to be better and to, and to actually improve my own life by also showing up the right way? Yeah. There's so much more power. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I, I do also see it on the structural level in that way. I think I was just more referring to like, 
I don't see that being believed by the people that I surround myself with. So like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I know it's out there definitely. And, and there is fear that comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're probably not listening to our podcast. Probably not. <laughs> oh, let's move into, I think this is our, no, not our final big question. But one of our last couple of big questions is yeah. what happens when a person of color says that you've caused harm and you're not quite sure you agree? What's at stake there, Tamir? Like, what's really at stake when this happens? Yeah, that's this is like such a big question. I think that a lot of us are afraid. I, I have been afraid of the truth of my behavior and its motivations and impacts mm. the narrative of that being out of my control mm. and then potentially being at risk of consequences, whether it's at work or in my social life or in my community. Right. Mm -hmm. That like, I will now be known as a racist and I'll be quote unquote canceled. And there's, there's sure. nothing I can do because it's out of my hands. Right. Yeah. Um, and the white said that that's a white centering fear, right. That like I'm beholden to other people's narratives. And so surely these notions of harm are just wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas another way of thinking about it might be that our ability to notice what we're doing and discern the impact that it's having may not be as reliable as we want it to be which is super unnerving. Mm, yeah. And I, I think one thing that we have to really understand as white folks who have, we get so much fucking rope in shaping our own narratives. There's literally like so many books, TV shows are written about how people thought we were one way. And then all of a sudden we're like on Capitol Hill or whatever. Right? Yeah. But like that fear is a fear that people of color live with all the time and not just a fear but actual consequences right that there's a narrative about them and what they bring to the table that is not that is largely not within their control and you hear this all the time right i can work twice as good and do twice as well and yeah. still get half as far so and their narrative doesn't get to change a lot of times like we can have the like yeah. and we're different narrative but like yeah. yeah not as many of those about folks of color the number of friends of color or even members of color I had when I when I ran a membership organization in philanthropy who are like, this is shit, but I actually don't know that it'll be different anywhere else. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Such different stakes, such yeah. different stakes for for us causing harm. <laughs> yep. And somebody point out like Louis C.K., who did some nasty stuff selling on Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. The consequences are not the same. No, they are not. They are not. <laughs> I know there's a piece too where folks of color can see things about our behavior as white folks and where it come from comes from that feel mm -hmm. really obvious to them, but it could take us a long time <laughs> to notice and accept. Um, mm -hmm. And while you know other people's narratives aren't always necessarily 100% accurate, accurate, you know, folks of color in this situation, they may speak to patterns in our behavior that we're not always ready to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think we have such work to do around, I mean, I think even like, you know, Robin D'Angelo talks about this in White Fragility, like, how do we make ourselves, like, easier to give feedback to? for mm -hmm. folks of color like how do we how do we kind of tend the soil of ourselves so that that those pieces of feedback can take root and mm -hmm. yeah yep 
Yep, mm. 100%. Did you want to share an example? I think you have an example of like these patterns. Yeah. So I had one that was about somebody else, but I should give one that's about me. So my sister-in-law is black and um, I recently learned I have ADHD and that may or may not be relevant to what I'm about to say. So <laughs> she told me at some point we had known each other for years. Like my brother and I shared an apartment for a while. We used to hang out all the time. Like, you know, we're cool. Right. Yeah. And she was like, you know, I don't know if you know you do this, but sometimes we're talking and you just turn around and walk away. And it makes me not want to talk to you. Ooh. And I was like, I do. Oh, oof. yeah. And it's like, that's, that just raises so many questions, right? Is it like, did I think the conversation was over? Did mm. I get distracted? Would I do that to a white person? Has a white mm. person ever told me I do that? Mm. Is that a normal thing I do that just isn't, that like doesn't go over well in this context? Mm. Like, I don't know. And we didn't end up really unpacking it. Cause I was like, shit, mm. I didn't know I was doing that. I'll try to do better. And then I hopefully stop doing it. Yeah. Um, but, and she never suggested that it was about racism. I don't know mm -hmm. that she felt that way, but it's an example of like, here's a thing I did not notice that somebody else did that could very yeah. well have a race or gender or both dimension to it. Yeah. It sounds like in that example, you were ready to accept that. Like you didn't notice you were doing the thing, but like you pretty openly accepted that feedback from your sister-in-law. Yeah. I wonder what, what, like what, what made your soil like fertile to accept that feedback, you know, like kind of what's the work that you've done so that you could hear that mm -hmm. and not respond with defensiveness, not respond with, well, I don't do that. Like, yeah. Um, it's this work, mm. right? It's like, you know, hearing and seeing and reading over and over that white folks have a tendency to deny feedback that we get. Mm. Mm. Um, and that criticism is often seen as a survival threat, but if we can learn to triage it a different way, so much more is possible. And so it's like the desire to be in the relationship is more important to me than protecting a false sense of innocence mm. over something that once addressed really isn't that big a deal. Sure. Yeah. You can hopefully shift with some ease. Yeah. Like there's yeah. more in it for me and for the work and being accountable than there is, and the relationship than there is in being right. Mm. Mm. I love that. I love that that you've done this work and that you were able to to see that. And that's what comes to the fore in these interactions. In this specific interaction, I'm sure, you know, we don't always knock it out of the park every time. But right. yeah. Mm. Mm. Let's transition into talking about what's next or what's now. So we want to stop causing harm. We want to be more accountable to the harm we cause. What should we be? affirmatively and actively looking to embody because the opposite yeah. of harm isn't obvious like the opposite of racism is anti-racism you got a great like do this don't do that this but what can we try on in terms of yeah if not harm what should we embody I so appreciate that question. And like, I'm, I've been writing about harm with, with some colleagues for over a year and like sometimes reading it, it just feels like, um, it could feel so demoralizing to be like, here are all the ways in which you cause harm. And because white supremacy and patriarchy infuse every aspect of our lives, it's like, here's the never ending list of ways you cause harm. And mm -hmm. so how do you actually avoid that? Yeah. 
at um, that like there's a question that is almost designed to generate hypervigilance. Yeah. So yes. to your point, right? Oh like, gosh. you know, the the opposite is not it's like the, the opposite of harm is not non-harm. I yeah. don't think that's possible. <laughs> yeah, um, we're gonna cause harm. The radical acceptance. Yeah. We've talked about that before. We gotta radically accept that. <laughs> yeah. Um but we do we have a draft of this that we want to offer y'all. And so the first piece that's already come up is care, right? Mm -hmm. So can we demonstrate a commitment to the well-being of people of color in our lives mm -hmm. through thoughtful and non-performative action? Right. Mm -hmm. So my goal is not to convince somebody that I am safe. It is to be safe in all the ways I know how. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. To show up for folks, to respect people's boundaries, to hold space for folks. To acknowledge when, when people say they're suffering, to acknowledge it and honor it. And again, without belaboring it, right? Mm -hmm. To see folks as whole people, all those different things. Um, and like, but when you do that, you show up in ways uh, where people, um, they can tell that there's a level of awareness and care mm -hmm. that creates some some measure of, of safety. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's yeah. part number one. Were you going to say something there? No, I just... Oh, just all of that. Yes. Practice care, embody care. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So two is discernment. And we use this word a fair amount, right? So like learning to anticipate and address possible harms that might come to people of color in specific situations, right? Are you planning a meeting? So how are you centering or at least reflecting the experience of people of color or what they might need in your plans? Mm. Are you developing a new policy for your church? How does mm. that policy potentially impact church members or community members of color, mm. right? Can mm. you learn to notice when somebody you're in, in interacting with or sharing space with might be experiencing harm? And can yeah. you exercise discretion in how you respond? You don't mm. necessarily want to white knight in and be like, that was harmful. And now you're drawing a lot of attention to a woman of color who is like, well, that was awkward, but I don't actually want to be noticed in this moment. Right. Or something sure. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's discernment and it's a level of skill. Mm. Um, and the third is accountability. So when you do cause harm or when harm happens and you've not interceded in some appropriate way, you can show that you're committed to making things right. You can offer repair, as we've said a few times, without pressuring someone to accept. You mm. can do your inner work so that your fear and your trauma and your trauma responses don't leak out or like spike out to the mm. people around you. All those different things that we talked about before. And so mm. for us, I think we're trying on as the as an antidote to harm, care, discernment, accountability. And we'd mm. love to know how, how that lands for folks who are listening. I super would love to know how that lands. This is our this is just our current thinking and our thinking evolves. Our thinking's evolved since we started this podcast. So yeah, if you have thoughts please hit us up, <laughs> email us, hit us up on our socials about, yeah, if not harm, does care, discernment and accountability are these kind of next steps that resonate with you or something else. Yeah. We know I mean, it's not comprehensive. So I'm sure we're missing things too. It's also worth noting that this is very much on like a human scale. So we're talking about one-to-one -one relationships or like small groups or like modestly yeah. sized organizations, because on a structural level, the antidote to harm is equity. Mm -hmm. and justice pure and simple mm -hmm. right ah. um so we're not just to be clear we're not there, there's sometimes a false equivalence between being like a good white person in your neighborhood yeah and that being enough that's mm -hmm. a lot it counts mm -hmm. for a lot but we can't do that to the exclusion of the macro structural things that also have to be addressed absolutely yeah
let's move into kind of our, our closing things that we always do. We always check in around the commitments we've made to take mm-hmm. kind of our own action. Tamir, tell me about your commitment. Like, what are where are you standing with that? So I think the last commitments I made were around building my activism work locally. And mm-hmm. I made some progress in that. That's likely turning into some business. And I think I actually need to do more or figure out more. And um, there's two things I'm I'm looking at. One is um, apologies to any North Adams politicos who are listening to this, but in the last state election, I was pretty underwhelmed by the quality of some of our candidates mm-hmm. uh, in the primary. And like, I am wondering what progressive candidate building looks like and supporting mm-hmm. folks for having like radical policy but being embedded enough in community that it reflects community will and is actually possible. Mm-hmm. So I am going to make a commitment there to, um, to like schedule a couple of conversations to talk more with people about that. And I've had some footnotes that I want to follow up on. I also, um, I want to talk to my wife about starting to pay a land tax to the Mohican people from whom this land was stolen mm-hmm. living here. I am so acutely aware of how, like mystical and I don't mean to like romanticize native people or like, you know, get into stereotypes, but like, this is a spiritual place. Right. Mm. And being Mm. here, I'm both in awe of that on a regular basis and acutely aware that I get to enjoy it in part because it was stolen from somebody else. Mm. So a simple thing that I can do is like, what if, what if my wife and I paid half of our property taxes every year to Mm. uh, the Mohican office Right. Mm-hmm. And most of the Mohican people are now living in Wisconsin, or at least that's where the the, the nation uh, reloc- was relocated. But there is an office here. So, mm-hmm. like, is that a simple thing that we can do to um, just offer some form of amends, solidarity? Yeah. Something. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. I feel like I say, that's what I say after you say, like, most things to me. I'm like, I love that. <laughs> the feeling <laughs> is <crazy>. mutual. <laughs> Um, keep me posted. I'll definitely check in with you around. Yeah, around Please. both of those pieces. Um, my commitment is to, you know, can get involved um, in local organizing efforts and stay involved. And I have continued to stay involved. Um, and I was thinking, like, is that still the right commitment? I mean, not that I'm going to drop that, but is there like an additional commitment I want to take on? And I had to like really check in with myself and like, I don't think I can take anything else on in this moment. Like, I don't think I have like the inner resource <laughs> to take on anymore. And I don't love that. I think there's a part of me that's like, I, you know, that gets is very much a sucker for the white supremacy culture kind of behavior of like more, better, bigger progress. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I'm like noticing resistance <laughs> in myself to mm-hmm. like just being like, this is enough for right now. Um, but if I'm honest with myself, I think that these efforts are enough and I'll I invite you to keep checking in with me because I think, mm-hmm. you know, that will change at some point, but that's, yeah. that's where I'm at. Can I ask you to be a little more specific in what the commitment you're making is? Mm, sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that is to, um, to kind of attend a monthly kind of organizing gathering that happens. Um, at least once a month. So there's one specific one that I've been attending monthly. And so I've been doing that. Um, and there are opportunities to attend more, which I think is where I start to think like, Oh, I can do it twice a month. Like I can, you know, 
but I think that I think that the one the one time is is what is feeling like enough right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this reminds me a lot of a conversation we had in maybe our first or second episode about how do I know I'm doing enough? Mm, yeah. And so I don't want to, I don't want to push too far into this, especially as we're at the end of a very long conversation. Um, but I think it, it's always, I, I, I'm curious as I listen to you about the feeling of this is enough and the, like, what's making, what's making you feel like that's the capacity you have. Not that what Mm -hmm. you're doing isn't enough, but I think that's always a good thing for us to check in on is like, am I feeling like I'm doing enough because I'm not able in this moment to make space for more? And if so, what do I want to do with that? Or is it like that what I'm doing is is truly satisfying to me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I think it's the former. I think it's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, if there's any way I can support you around that offline, I'm more than happy to. Oh, thank you, friend. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to tell folks where they can move some money to? Speaking of land tax and other such things. <laughs> yeah. So as we always do, we encourage folks to move money to organizations and leaders. Um, organizations, excuse me. We encourage people to move money to organizations that are led by people of color that are doing work that relates to or has inspired the content that we are offering uh, in this episode. So a great organization, uh, Critical Resistance. Um, isn't that Angela Davis's organization? I Am I remembering that right? Oh, yes. I think yes. I hope I'm getting that right. I hope I'm getting that right. I actually have done a fair amount of homework on abolition. Um, and Critical Resistance is a really important organization that seeks to build an international movement to end the prison industrial complex by challenging the belief that caging and controlling people makes us safe. By the way, Allison and I, I want out you, I identify as an abolitionist. I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to getting into that topic more on the show. Yeah. Um And uh, Critical Resistance uh, lives a commitment to follow the leadership of those most impacted by the prison industrial complex, including people who have been incarcerated and their families. Um, And they work both nationally and have local chapter hubs. So um, throw them a couple of bucks if you can, whatever amount feels doable for you. Um, When you give it, you hurt a little. Um, And if you're interested in doing more on abolition, check out their local hubs. Um, there's also a lot of really amazing resources out there about harm and repair and abolition. Um, Transform Harm is an online resource hub for ending violence with really good resources on transformative justice, community accountability, and um, abolition feminism. Um, there's also a couple of written resources I want to just suggest to folks real quick, if that's okay, Allison. Yeah. Um, so I've already mentioned We Will Not Cancel Us by Adrienne Marie Brown, um, my favorite workbook on this topic is Fumbling Toward Repair, mm-hmm. um, which is by Mariam Kaba and I believe Shira Hassan. Um, there are a couple of more. I hope we'll post them to socials. We're fortunate to live in a time when there's so much good work being done about this because we got to change the way we're doing this stuff. Mm, mm, mm. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, this is a long episode. I'm so glad we did it. Mm-hmm. But we also can't end without encouraging people to support our work too. So if this podcast is um, supporting you and showing up more whole and healthy in the fight to dismantle white supremacy, consider throwing us a couple bucks on coffee. Um, ko-fi.com slash in it together allies. Yep. I think- um, and, you know, we always say we don't do this for the money, but money definitely helps. And as Allison mentioned earlier, we're going to do our first coffee break on March 8th, 
12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. Um, and it's it should be really good. should be really good. So we hope to see you there. Come hang out with us. You don't have to donate to join. Um, we certainly appreciate if folks want to throw us a couple of bucks if they're there and they find the content valuable. Mm-hmm. Look out for more info on our socials and our email list. Tamir, thank you so much. Thank you, Allison. Thank you.